Hello, and welcome to another episode of Signal from Jano Media. This time, I'm very excited to be able to play you a conversation I had recently with Alex Cameron, who is CEO of Decarb Connect. Now, Decarb Connect, as well as making a very successful podcast that we help them with, first and foremost, they publish reports and they host conferences across the US, Europe and Canada. The focus being on the decarbonisation of big business, big industries. But most relevant to us today is their podcast, which I don't think it's exaggerating to say is hugely successful. We've been helping them make it for three years now, and they are about to publish their 100th episode. Feels like a pretty good milestone opportunity for me to find a little bit more out about Alex herself, the Decarb Connect origin story, including the podcast, and decarbonisation as an industry, or as Alex called it, an ecosystem. Really interesting conversation. Here it is. Lovely. Right, well, let's crack on. Okay. So let's talk a little bit to start with about decarbonisation, right? But but let's talk about it as if I'm sort of six years old because it was my understanding of it, having listened to you do the podcast for a couple of years now, is that it's a sort of new industry, a new sector. I mean, would you call it an industry or a sector? Well, we, we definitely refer to it as an ecosystem, I okay. suppose, because it kind of comprises all these different segments and industries coming together to solve it but yes it is certainly in the industrial space comparatively new okay right so but it's and it's this very sort of current goal for humanity i mean i know that as a species we've always had this kind of awareness of how our occupation of the planet affects it you know save the dolphins protect the ozone layer these these were the slogans on the t-shirts of my childhood but it always felt like it was this kind of outlying section of the population right who are fretting about these things but now you know saving the planet is right at the heart of the corporate agenda these massive industries you know the folks who build things the folks who ship things the guys who power everything obviously these huge huge industries it's the number one thing on their agenda it's it's like not okay to not be thinking about this stuff um and there are folks out there, obviously, who are tasked with sort of figuring out how we're going to do all this decarbonisation, right? But I guess there isn't so much known about the direction we're all going to go in. Um, we're sort of all figuring it out together as we go, is, is my understanding. So wouldn't it be great if there was some sort of central meeting place where we could all get together and talk about this? Uh, enter... Alex and Decarb Connect. Stage left. So I suppose my first question is a two-part question. So how does Decarb Connect fill that need that I just sort of tried to um, encapsulate? And because mm-hmm. it because it does feel like this this networking and connection bridging aspect will be pretty important as we'll move forward. So how did you identify that there was a need there and get in early? And and how does it what does what does it do? How does it how does it operate? Ooh. Yeah, it's that, a lot. Sorry. That's like three questions in one Sorry. and I'm up for it. <laughs> so um so first I'll start with the how how I identified it yes. and um where that came from. So the the kind of hopefully short version 
because I'm very good at the long version, but the short version is my background for many years had been in conferences, business intelligence and events. And the kind of skill or experience that came with that was all about how you identified a market, got to know the inhabitants of that marketplace, the people that were tasked with doing something and the people that helped them do it through software or services and then developing events that spoke to those people and brought them together. So events are not new, networks are not new. I'd had quite a lot of experience in oil and gas and energy sectors as well. So the kind of broader landscape was not new. What was new was the focus on decarbonization, for me at least. So how I came to pick that was just simply, uh, quite simply, the decarbonization was just in the news increasingly throughout 2018 to 2019, which was around the time when I was starting to work out where I wanted to create a business. And then in January 2020, which is when I really sort of closed down a, a previous consulting business I'd been running and deliberately focused in on this. Um, quite quickly, I would say within a couple of months of sort of having quite wide ranging conversations um, with people, it became clear that the, the least well known bit and the least well served bit was actually around the biggest portions of CO2 that we emit, which are these heavy emitting industrial manufacturers. Um, so the, the core client base that we work with are cement manufacturers, steel, aluminium manufacturers, mining, glass, chemicals, refining, organizations that by the very nature of the product they make, uh, use an awful, you know, huge amount of energy. And that's where the majority of the CO2 that they emit comes from. And then for some of them, it's also about the process that something goes through. Like if you're cracking, you know, some kind of crude oil and turning it into refined products that the energy that you use in the actual chemical process will also emit CO2. So that was how I got there. Yeah, it was partly from current events and then deliberately going out and trying to find uh, a, you know, a sector, a group of sectors where it was worthwhile mm. setting something up um, because, you know, it's it's hard to set up a new business yeah. and the last thing you want to do is spend a lot of time and energy building a business that's not just not going to work or is going to be another me too mm -mm. kind of entry into the market. And so, mm. so that's, that's where we come from. So, so what we do then is um, we are a membership network, the decarbonization leaders network. That's one thing that we are developing and growing. We have about 200 members of that. We run a series of summits, broadly speaking in the Northern hemisphere. So we're not really focused outside the North America, Europe, UK at the moment. Mm -hmm. And we run the podcast, which is what we're here to talk about. The goal of all of that is to try and help this early stage where it's, if you're in the early kind of foothills of any venture, it's really hard to get your hands on information that is usable, insights that are current, and it can be hard to meet the people that are actually going to make a change to the way that you would implement something. Mm -hmm. So so that's what we do. We help people that are in the foothills, these very early stages of decarbonization, identify people they can work with, information they can use, projects they could replicate, and so forth and so forth. So Excellent. that's what we do. But yeah, and you said you said that it was the biggest, the, the biggest sort of players, the biggest culprits, if you like, um, that were doing the least. Have I got that right? When you start well, to look into it, I I mean it's it was more that 
as a provider of information, a convener of meetings, what, what I'm always looking for is a place where the least amount of that is happening. So it's not so much mm. about what were the industry doing, it's that it was so early mm. in their journey that there weren't other weren't many other providers of that information or or networking opportunity. But the reason the reason it's kind of early days for those uh, big industries is it's there's all sorts of reasons. Yes, some of it is that as humans we put off the inevitable for some time. <laughs> but the the other very important point is these are known as foundation industries. These are industries that are hundreds of years old. Many of the processes are, you know, if not hundreds, certainly decades old, they are expensive, they are complicated. So if you want to, you know, a cement plant that may have a lifespan of 50 to 60 years, if you want to make a change in that, you don't just do it at the drop of a hat and chuck a bit of money, you know, you're not in a fast moving industry. You're in an industry that probably might look at that asset once every, I don't know, 15, 20 years and think about how you're going to upgrade. So it's a very simplistic overview of it, but it, it is a complex set of industries to affect change in. And any change that you affect in it is going to cost a significant amount of money. And some of those industries, not all, operate on relatively narrow profit margins. Mm. You know, they're about volume. Mm-mm-mm. They're not about a high profit margin. So again, if you are, they, they are commercial entities, they, they have to make any change in the context of remaining a viable and sustainable business. So, yeah, early days, but definitely progress is being made. And as we'll go on to talk about, that there has been a relatively fast shift in the conversation, even in the last three years. Um, So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I've... I've, um... I've even been witness to some of that myself, but we'll get to that in a minute. But but you start you set this up sort of at the just before you just said the pandemic, right? So you sort of got it up yeah. on its legs, and then the pandemic hit. So so, yeah. so let's just get a bit of that origin story, I suppose, and then we can segue nicely into how podcasting came and saved the day for you. <laughs> well, yeah. So January 2020, when I started, um, it was just me. Um, I knew how to launch. I knew how to start portfolios of this kind. I'm Alex, January 2020 compared to Alex, early April 2020 were quite different beings, I would say, because very, you know, pretty quickly throughout February, you know, we're all starting to hear about this kind of some sort of disease somewhere else. And then by March, it wasn't somewhere else. And then by the middle of March or late March, which was actually about three or four weeks after I'd incorporated, it was very clear that the UK, Europe and everywhere everywhere else was going to shut down. So, so yes, I mean, not ideal (laughs) for a a business that's rooted in bringing people together. And yet I have to say, if just purely selfishly, if it were going to happen at any point in our journey as business, better then. Really? Yes, because it gave gave me time to pivot and find a new route forward. And it opened up this whole conversation about podcasting, which I am honestly not uh, tooting Jano Media's horn when I say this. If you guys hadn't suggested it, I, I don't think I'd have ever looked at it. I don't. I don't think I thought of myself as someone who should be doing a podcast or could. Or I, I didn't really understand how valuable it was going to be. So, so yes, that year, twenty twenty, was definitely. Um, to say the least, something of a mind melt. Um, but podcasting was a it was a really interesting starting point for how we could brand build at a time when we couldn't brand build by 
hosting a conference or or whatever else, or at least it wasn't as easy mm. to do that. Mm. So, so you started doing the podcast as to what term did you use? Brand build. That was the brand building yeah. tool early days. So the the idea behind the podcast initially was that it might. I mean, I I didn't have the sense that it would necessarily be a forever project. Yeah. I I love that it is, and I definitely won't stop You're doing it now. now. You're trapped. I'm trapped now. <laughs> but um, the the idea behind it was that it would at least start the sharing of information. So part of what's important about how we work is that we don't fixate on one sector. We are focused on how this group of harder to abate sectors can share information that that often these industries are very siloed so the podcast gave us the opportunity to start sharing information you know between these sectors so that was number one number two as a launch business you know it was very difficult for us to get our name I say us it was still me yeah. at this point <laughs> and a couple of contractors it was very hard to get that first level of awareness out there that podcast was brilliant for that because people were up for that kind of content they were definitely interested in the kind of sectors that we were bringing onto the podcast so yes it 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 was both about the information that we wanted to start showing we could you know provide access to but it was also about getting the brand established and moving in a year when it would have been you know hard to do to do much else mm. uh, at that point. Mm. I'm just curious what your plans were. What what were the plans for the startup before <laughs> before you got grounded? Oh, um, Alex 2020. I do remember. <laughs> Alex 2020 was absolutely sure that we would run our first in-person event, uh, probably in London in September 2020. Then in Europe, and you know, I had a whole 18 month to two year game plan for the events and things that we were going to do. So yes, that was quite hard to put to one side. Have you still got those documents somewhere, or did you just put them put them in a blender? Um, I'm pretty sure I put them on a bonfire <laughs> at some point in a very cathartic moment. <laughs> yeah, because you had all the sort of contacts from the oil and gas industry. You said you already had those guys, so so you you could have feasibly have done that. I had a handful of contacts who were able to then refer me on. Right, yeah. I had more than a handful of contacts, but I didn't have many that were actually working on decarbonisation as an issue. Most of the people that I'd been interacting with before were either on the trading, commodities trading side of thing, or before that, more on, I guess, the kind of plant level uh, maintenance and operations and things like that. So they were not they were not the same people that I am now and that me and the team are talking to regularly, but those contacts were able to refer me into people. And, you know, 20 years in events, I, I don't have much fear about opening up an email to introduce myself to someone. So it was just the, the other thing about that first year was it was just a year of introducing myself and talking to people about, you know, what was going on with them and, and decarbonisation. So that that's how it really all kicked off. So, Alex, I'm, I'm curious about the way in which you might have been able to kind of track the changes within this industry sector that was relatively new to you and everyone as you've recorded more of these conversations. Um, I wonder whether, does that make sense as a question, whether you've got any? Yeah, it does. So, um, yeah, I, I think what is true is that in the very early days, so pre-podcast, that for the first few months before we even started the podcast, there was a very mixed opinion about how quickly things were going to move in industry, which is to even say in industry is ridiculous because it refers to so many different types of 
company but you know we'll use that general term for now but there a lot of the feedback i got was yes we need information but we're probably not going to be able to do stuff for a while and we're still really working out if it's possible so early i think some of the earliest episodes um dealt with what is possible like if if some if we were going to task a cement company with net zero how would they get there and very i would say quicker than i expected and this is this really is talking in generalities but it felt like the first six to nine six months maybe of the podcast were about the can we do it is it possible and then it felt like all of a sudden it shifted and it shifted for a couple of reasons one was some different levels of policy that came in um in europe and the uk and then the beginnings of some policy that was policy tied to incentives this is uh in in the us as well so the us really it was last year that their big policy and incentives push started to make a, a big splash but- and, and by that sorry by that you mean government basically saying look yeah. y- you can get tax breaks or basically tax breaks no it was a combination of so in in europe and and the the uk which obviously we do now have to say separately but <laughs> But um, yes, in in continental Europe, there was a period of time where governments were saying, right, we are going, we are legally requiring the country to get to net zero by X year, by 2040, by 2045, by 2035. Um, And so with that started to come more pressure on industry and, and other sectors of the economy as well to start really looking at, okay, what what is our plan going to be? Because if by that date, we are not in compliance. What we we might not know the details of what will happen, but we know it's not going to be good. It's going to be trouble. Yeah. So so that that sort of started to push people down a track of okay, what's our what's our net zero pathway or what's our CO two reduction pathway? Mm-hmm. Okay. Then what was coming on at the same around that time, similar uh, similarly was um, policy um, in the UK, in Europe, and, and other countries that was more about the innovation of technologies and systems and solutions that were going to drive this deep decarbonization processes. So that the money around that was more kind of innovation money where they might say, okay, we're, we're putting in place this particular program. Everyone apply for it. We'll pick out the best four or the best 20 or the best whatever. And you'll get a slice of cash for this pilot or this project or this technology. So that 2021 felt like the year when that started to really take off. And so there was more and more discussion on the podcast as we went through 2021 about pilots and um, or demonstrations and pilots, which were these very early stage technology projects where an early stage disruptor, entrepreneur, or, you know, and their team would go out find an industrial to work with and start some kind of small scale project. So we talked, we talked about quite a lot of that. And then I I guess sort of the next phase beyond that has been people talking about scaling up Mm -hmm. and then some of the the bigger challenges around scale up. So if early 2021 through the middle was about, Oh, I'm doing this pilot. I'm this disruptor and I have this tech. It's sort of in 2022, we started to hear a lot more, about people really thinking, about, okay, well, that's fine. So-and-so has a pilot. We might have a pilot, but but what happens next? How are we going to scale up? And what is the financial reality of all of this going to be? And how are we going to afford it 
you know, are people going to pay for green products that cost a lot more? And it was, we started hearing a lot more of these kinds of discussions. So for people listening to this who are in the field of decarbonization, this this won't be a surprise. You know, yes, it, it the conversation moved at a pace, but the surprise to me was how quickly mm. we went through each of these phases, because given that some of these sectors are traditionally seen as quite slow moving, it was interesting to me that actually once the conversations got up and underway, there seemed to be a quite a um, a pace mm, to them. Mm. I mean, that's it. I didn't know obviously anything about that. The pressure that was suddenly on everybody in terms of the incentive bit. You know, the the you're going to be in trouble unless you start making this a priority piece. Well, it's particularly true in Europe, and then the US last year had its kind of big moment in time where there were already many companies in the US who were looking at how they were going to decarbonize, not just the US, Canada and, and Central America as well. So it's not that no one was doing anything. There was there were a lot of companies doing something, but the shift last year with the Inflation Reduction Act and, and other policy initiatives, just all of a sudden, they were talking about billions of dollars to help support, again, mostly this earlier innovation cycle, but still, that's still money that you can use to get something moving. And the other big piece of policy uh, in the US, which had been actually had been in place for a while, were the tax breaks around uh, carbon sequestration. But um, they, they just were gaining more and more ground last year and becoming more and more valuable, those tax breaks. So again, that that was what helped companies get moving with work that would otherwise be phenomenally expensive and hard to justify to shareholders or other people, no matter what the climate mm. logic was, yeah. you'll have to show that you can, you know, remain a, a profitable business and one that can continue doing doing its work. Mm. It's all about money, isn't it? It's all anyone cares about. Well, it's about longevity of companies that have, you know, tens of thousands of employees. And so if you look at it like that, it doesn't feel quite so quite so depressing. But um but yeah, it, it is important that it's about money. And that's why you will probably have heard a few of our episodes talking about the business model of decarbonization. Yes, interesting. Yeah. What that means is, okay, how do we do this and either make money from it? Or how do we do this and certainly not make a loss from it? So there's more and more discussion about that and that's still still ongoing and still still very relevant and that's the, that's going to be like the next phase isn't it how are we going to pay for all this how are we going to finance how how are we going to allow for businesses to take on loans etc yeah and then one of the bits that really interests me at the moment is and how do we create a market for this green or low carbon materials that we say we want so we want cement and concrete to decarbonize. We want steel to decarbonize. We want glass companies to decarbonize. Are we either individually or at a government level or at a corporate, are we going to pay for that? Are we going to pay a premium? Mm, yeah. And that that green premium discussion, that's still a hugely current thing. So I'm, I'm interested, you've, you've talked a lot about the... Um the interest in the sort of earliest stages of the innovation and, and how you might have tracked that throughout recording the podcast. What, what sort of stuff have you seen that's particularly interesting that you've tracked the evolution of, I suppose? Yeah, well, I uh, it definitely is the case that the, the episodes that we host where we have uh, CEOs or co-founders of some of these uh, still relatively early stage disruptive technologies, those are the ones that get our highest view viewing figures and the ones that get shared across people's own personal networks, which is kind of interesting because that wasn't necessarily where I thought we would 
play yeah. you know when we first started the podcast so that that's been good the kind of technologies that interest me that I've seen emerge over that time well a lot of it to begin with was around carbon capture simply how do you capture co2 from flu stacks or other environments and around hydrogen how how do we how do we get green hydrogen to a point that's remotely affordable you know those discussions but increasingly the areas that I find personally interesting and which are getting a lot of um, attention we can see it in the viewing figures are are actually around what happens to the co2 once it's captured so there's a lot of interest in storage obviously um, but there is also increasing interest and it's an area that i find personally very interesting in co2 reuse or recycling so this is where the gas uh, can be transformed into a variety of all kinds of products whether that's green fuels so it gets kind of re recreated back into a fuel or into hard matter uh, that could be used to create carbon black which is this material that's used in our tires and all sorts of things so that reuse of carbon carbon dioxide in everyday uh, products is definitely well as i say personally interesting but we also see those episodes as being uh, things that people are, are very interested in so i think i think um there is interest in the technology. There's interest in who is funding at the earliest stage, but also then who is going to fund as these things scale up. So there's actually a surprising amount of money, both from government pots, but also from venture capital, corporate venture capital for this earlier stage of development uh, technology or developing technology. The, the challenge is then, okay, but how do we then get it to the real the real scale, the truly industrial scale, which is going to cost hundreds of millions or billions of dollars. Um, and so, yeah, there's a lot of interest in that as well. And I guess that's been a shift over the last few years, because to begin with, when I did those episodes, what people wanted to hear was simply what's the technology that could work. Then they wanted to say, oh, who, who else is investing in this? Now it's uh, okay, well, that was all very interesting, but how are we going to make it real as in scalable? So that that's also been an interesting journey for the podcast, if you like, but interesting for me to sort of see how how those conversations kind of lead on one one to the other. It's so it's, that stuff about carbon capture is absolutely mind blowing. I, I mean, of course, you have to do something with this stuff. You have to capture it. And I think I knew sort of somewhere loosely that they were probably putting it down in the earth somewhere. I think I knew that. But that, and that's still very much what people, what is happening, correct? Well, it's starting to happen. So there is there has been for some time CO2 stored underground. And originally, like the original business model pre-decarbonisation was part of what they used to call in, enhanced oil recovery. So it was used to push into the ground to then push out oh, wow. a product that people wanted. But now when people talk about CCS, carbon capture storage, what they normally are referring to are, well, in Europe, it's normally in the North Sea or offshore places where they can use old oil reservoirs to put gas in and store it. But that's still, that's very much in development. It's not happening yet. In the States, there are more sites where it is starting to happen and probably by the end of this decade it's going to be i think big business in the us in particular because of the the tax incentives that they have around it right, it just yeah. makes makes the business model again that, that mm. phrase business mm. model around decarbonization much more viable plus they have more of the right geology and bluntly more space than mm. europe mm. and the uk have so yeah, so, yeah. 
Yeah. And, and and the reuse of things? Well, reuse is just, is reuse. the reuse technologies are just on the whole very early stage with some exceptions. So there is already sustainable aviation fuel that is being used in small quantities on some flights, you know, but that, that's an example of something that is CO2 being reused and recycled into a new form. It's just those technologies tend to be earlier stage and yeah, it'll take a while. But I, I personally think that's the conversation we'll be having when I'm in my 80s and people are talking about, oh, do you remember when there was all that fuss about decarbonisation? What people will be talking about then is, or, or they'll be aware of then, is the amount of products that we'll be using then that are made from that waste CO2. But um, yeah, it'll take time. It'll take mm -hmm. time and money to scale those technologies to make them kind of viable at scale. Mm. But you're quite confident that it will go that way. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think actually human beings have shown we're quite resourceful when it comes to recycling. We just need to put some money into it and make a business model out of it. But yeah, so I, I do think it'll happen. Well, good. That's encouraging, Alex. So uh, it is going well. You've done nearly nearly 32,000 downloads of Decarb Connect, which is pretty, that's pretty cool. That's no small feat. So so I'm wondering what you might say to the Alex of three years ago, who was just setting out on her podcasting journey. Anything you've learned that you can, any wisdom you can share with our listeners about your podcasting journey? So the first thing I'd say is I think it's really easy to sort of get into this headspace. Like we, we started and we were doing a weekly episode or trying to, that actually became quite stressful uh, for a while, especially as I was growing a team and, and just trying to, um, yeah, trying to sort of drive the rest of the business. So I suppose the learning point from that was actually two things. One, it really was worth doing a weekly episode at one point. And yet I would say, well, not at one point, it, doing a weekly episode is is what helped us get known for this kind of content. And yet I would say to Alex three years ago, that doesn't mean you can't take deliberate breaks. Mm -hmm, like, mm -hmm. I think if someone out there listening to this is considering uh, starting up a podcast series, I would highly recommend that you start deliberately saying, right, I'm going to do a series for six weeks on X and then have a two-week pause. Then I'm going to do a series of however many things on Y and don't feel, don't get trapped in that weekly cycle and just lay the pressure on yourself. I think relax into it and don't be afraid I, I don't be afraid to bring some of your personality to it. I think one of the things that you, st I was very nervous on the podcast for the first few months and purely because I thought I ought to be sort of like a BBC world news presenter. <laughs> I don't know what I thought, but I think relax into it and be yourself. Cause actually the podcasts I listen to the most are those where the presenter is obviously doing something sensible. It's content I'm interested in, but they bring themselves to it because yeah. That's what makes it interesting. And, you know, if you become a habitual listener to something, it's quite often because you're also kind of engaged with the person that, that's leading it. So I would say that as well. Um, and then the other thing I would say is not so much advice on doing anything differently, but just it, keep your eyes open for the unexpected wins. Like one of the things that I love about our podcast is that it's introduced us to audiences that I would not have dreamt of getting in touch with. So examples are, you know, one of one of the countries where we have the most listeners is India. We don't currently at the moment do a dedicated piece of content there, but we are building a following there. It may well now be one of the reasons where we start 
why we will start doing some dedicated content for the subcontinent next year. Um, So keep your eyes open on how your content spreads both deliberately, but also accidentally, bluntly, you know, how, what markets does it find? And if you're someone like me, that, that can be fascinating to see like those accidental wins can really inform some interesting parts of your overall business plan anyway. What about stuff about um, your guests? I mean, did you find it difficult to get people on initially? One of the things that doing the podcast has been very useful for is that it is a good door opener. If you're someone who enjoys listening to podcasts, which many people do when they're on a run or in a car, and someone approaches you to be on a podcast in your field of expertise, you are far more likely Mm. to say yes to that introduction, yes to that first conversation, than if you're approached about almost anything else that that we do as a business. So it's been a great door opener. Mm. Um, It isn't usually difficult to get someone to say yes it can be difficult to pin people down to a time and that's one of the reasons why the eagle-eyed followers of decarb connects podcast will have noticed that we've gone to more of a roughly speaking fortnightly release episode because simply put the busier and the more out in the world and (laughs) the more normal business has become post-covid the harder it has become to pin people down to recording times in a, in a quick turnaround. So, uh, yes, yeah, so we've gone to a fortnightly on average episode largely because of that. You know, it, it, it can be a challenge to pin people down to the actual time for recording, but not that difficult if you have the right uh, series and the right area of interest to get good people to contribute. Hmm. Yes, and I always thought the people, or I thought, I imagined that a lot of the guests on your show were there to um, sort of set and not sell. Does that sound dirty? Is that a dirty word? But like <laughs> be seen. I think some of them are. I don't think all of them are. I mean, I think there are, of course, there are episodes where there are guests who, you know, they may have a technology that they are hoping is going to find its own audience. Mm. I mean, what we aim to do, and I hope we're successful at it, is to ensure that you know, we want to give people a platform. This is early stage stuff. Decarbonizing industry is far from a mature area. I I am more than happy to give a platform to people with interesting perspectives, interesting technologies. We just want to make sure that those episodes present content, not a sales pitch. So we we talk quite a lot yeah. with people before each episode and we'll come up with a plan for the key theme that we're going to hang the discussion around and of course I want to give them the opportunity to show what they're all about as well but that yeah it shouldn't be a sales pitch Mm. um but yeah so I I would say probably about I don't know if I was going to guess maybe half the people that come on as guests probably have it as part of their they they have it in mind as a oh this is an outreach activity it's it's my job to make sure that it doesn't feel too much like too much like that and that we are adding value through the discussion that we have yeah well that does come across as someone who's listened to every episode you've ever done (laughs) well done sassy (laughs) i mean i get paid (laughs) to i would listen anyway um so just to close off then i suppose people can get in touch how do people find you alex and decub connect 
Yes. So if you're listening to this and you have an interest in industrial decarbonisation, then the simplest way to get hold of me is through our website, which is decarbconnect.com. But you can also find me on LinkedIn. Um, and I'm also, you know, obviously for Jano, this is more about how podcasts add value to a business and, and how they work. So if you have questions about that, you know, let yeah. me know. And and you'll, you'll big us up if anybody gets in touch with you asking for a review. I will. I will. <laughs> and not because I have to. <laughs> not because you're paid to. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Alex. Thanks for your time today. Thank oh, thanks, Sassy. That was fun. Thanks again, Alex, for chatting to me for this episode. And congratulations on 100 episodes of the Decarb Connect podcast, which has now had over 40,000 downloads, just to correct what we said in the episode, which was 32,000, I think. A huge, huge achievement. You are what we all want to be, us baby podcasts, when we grow up. We will put all of the relevant links for getting in touch with Alex in the show notes for this episode. And if you'd like help making 100 episodes of your own podcast, then we can help you do that. And you can reach out to us at Jano Media through our website. And see you next time. <laughs>